Good evening. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, welcome to the LSE. Um, welcome to the Marshall Institute. And uh, welcome in particular um, to tonight's uh, conversation uh, about uh, the possibility of a better world. Um, it's my privilege um, to introduce David Sainsbury, Lord Sainsbury of Turville, extraordinarily distinguished philanthropist, thinker on issues of improving the world, science, innovation, government, policy, welfare. And we're going to have a conversation tonight um, based around this book okay, by Georgina Ferry, which chronicles uh, a rather extraordinary journey in making the, better, the world a better place. And I'll just give you a couple of start and end points from this book. It starts, correct me if I get any of this wrong, with a five-pound check, which a young David Sainsbury committed to public benefit and ends roughly now with the disbursement of roughly a billion pounds of philanthropic capital. And it goes by way of a series of experiments about how best to uh, make the world a better place. As you know, or as many of you know, um, the LSE is committed to understanding how things are, why things are, and how they might be otherwise, and putting science, rigor, and analytics around that. Um, and that's why the Marshall Institute, which cares about private impact for public benefit, is at the LSE. And that's why we're so proud to host this conversation. Um, David has said that he'd prefer the evening to be discursive, so he's not going to give you lots of PowerPoint slides and lots of talking at you. He and I are going to have a conversation. At some point, after about 40 minutes, um, I'm going to open the conversation to the floor and invite you to put questions to us. So as the evening goes by, start thinking about your perfectly honed question. Okay. Um, and I'm going, to start, um, I'm going to start with, I guess, the question that I would most like to hear the answer to, um, which is, what advice would you give me, or indeed anyone in the audience, if they wanted to have the maximum effect with their own philanthropy, with their time, with their money, with their interventions? Okay, I mean, uh, I think that is a, uh, a, a useful, interesting question because uh, when I started out, um, uh, I had no idea uh, what to do. I mean, I was in this very strange position where I suddenly inherited um, a lot of shares in the family business. Um, and um, uh, the family uh, solicitor said, well, you will, of course, set up a charitable trust. Um, and I said, well, yes, okay. Um, and um, I had at that point no idea uh, what you did, how you did that, what, what the purpose was, how you 
did it. My parents had a charitable trust, but it was quite small. And um, the way it operated was very much you wait, waited till people applied, asked for grants, and then you gave it to them. So I had no idea how you, how you did it. Um, and of course, I was in the very lucky position that um, I was only 26 at the point. Uh, so I've actually had kind of 50 years to try and work this out. Um, and of course, that puts you in a much stronger position than uh, most people who have to actually earn the money uh, over much of their life and only come to this kind of decision uh, kind of later in life. Um, and I think there are things you, you can think about this which will help you uh, to make it most effective. Um, I think the first thing is to, to understand there are uh, different ways you can give money, um, all of which are, uh, may, may meet individuals' uh, needs. I mean, if, if you don't want to spend a lot of time on it, you have no particular uh, personal agendas, uh, or even if you have a personal agenda, there's nothing wrong in giving it to a big charity uh, which uh, will spend it uh, well. Uh, you might today be slightly more selective in which of the big charities you gave it to, but there's nothing wrong. They're professional bodies. They do a reasonable job of giving that money away. Um, that's one way. Um, and if you don't want to spend a lot of time and effort on it, it's not at all a bad way. Uh, a second way is, is you can say we are interested in uh, this area of policy um, and we you know, ask people who want to have grants to send in grant applications and we will then uh, decide which we think are the best ones and fund those. Um, I personally think that tends to be a quite difficult way to run it because um, uh, the size of the grant uh, doesn't in any way determine the effort. So you, you, if you have a lot of small grants um, and they're in slightly different subjects, um, that can make an awful lot of uh, work to assess which is the right one, unless you say, I will just make an arbitrary decision. I like that one. And, and some people do just that. I, I like that one, I don't like that one, and, and so on. And then the third way is to say, no, uh, uh, we, we really want to make a difference in a, a number of areas. We really care about these areas, um, and we're prepared to put effort and time uh, uh, and money into projects in this area. Um, but if you're going to do that, then you have to say, look, we're going to spend the time really uh, understanding uh, what are the issues, uh, what are the right policy responses, who are the people who can make a difference? Uh, and, that, and you've got to then commit to a certain amount of time. Uh, and I think if you're going to do that, only do it in areas which you really care about, uh, because then you'll put in the effort and, and so on to do it. Yeah. So I think the first thing is to decide uh, which of those you want, um, and then uh, uh, be prepared to put the effort in to, to make it work. And that's been your... That's been your lifelong approach, as it were, to make those decisions. And that's where, I, that's where I've got to. Uh, it, it took quite a bit of time, but that's where I eventually <coughs> okay. got to. Okay. In the book, there's reference to the movement that some of you will be familiar with called effective altruism, which 
takes a slightly different approach. It says this is a utilitarian calculus and everyone has a duty to, as it were, get the maximum return um, for the minimum cost in areas that are neglected and tractable and so on. And and Georgina writes in the book um, how, um, how unsympathetic that view is to people who've had a profound... Uh, who've made a profound difference uh, and, and argues that, that, that you and others simply don't believe that. Is, is that right? Yeah, I, I, th- I think it's trying to impose uh, on the world a particular kind of calculus, um, uh, which is, is not true, I think, for all circumstances. And um, uh, it, it makes it sound incredibly easy. You just look at and you say, how many extra days of life uh, do people get from this? And if you get more from that than from the other, uh, then that is what you do. Um, uh, I, I don't think life is as simple as that if what you're really trying to do uh, is improve the quality of people's lives. Um, uh, if, if I, I have quite a lot of projects in Africa. Um, uh, that particular school has a very clear view. Uh, if you were going to do that, you put the money into bed nets, yeah. uh, which keep out mosquitoes, and in that way you can say for X um, hundred pounds, uh, you can prolong people's lives by this amount. Now, and the, there are real questions about bed nets and how much they do uh, actually... Uh, save people's lives but uh, compare that with putting money into say uh, creating real jobs for people uh, which will lead to them having some money which they can then uh, use to get a better house and better medical treatment and school books for their children I'm not absolutely clear uh, that 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 kind of simple calculation of day's life uh, deals with what is a much more profound uh, issue about quality of human life. You also seem to represent a rather refreshing um, uh, attitude to um, lots and lots of reporting and lots and lots of measurement. Um, And if I've read the book correctly, your view seems to be much more get to understand something deeply, work with really good people, and then trust them to do really good things. Is that a fair characterization? Um, well, I think the issue of measurement is, is, um, uh, uh, is an interesting one, and um, I, I, I need to make this sort of point very clearly because it can be misunderstood. Uh, I'm not against... I think it's very important that you evaluate what you do. Uh, uh, I suppose this comes from my uh, business background, but I think those targets should be built into what you're doing. And if you know what you're doing, it's usually not very difficult to calculate whether you're being successful or not. Okay, uh, we have a project, a big cotton project in Tanzania. Uh, the started was from the proposition, which is it's a very good country to grow cotton, 300,000 people to rather more actually, people's lives depend on cotton. They have the worst productivity in in Africa. And uh, if you look at that way, you probably can increase the yield threefold, which which will make a huge difference in people's lives. 
Um, that's what we started that project. Um, there's no great mystery if, if we can do that with better seeds uh, and um, better uh, methods of agriculture um, and a different relationship between ginners and farmers. Uh, at the end of every season, you know, are we increasing the yield or not? We don't need armies of people uh, doing monitoring and evaluation. So that, it, it, it should be something fundamental to a project. The other thing, which is kind of a bit controversial, which is, uh, of course, as soon as you start this, the next thing that happens is a whole group of people who claim to be a profession of monitoring and evaluation. Uh, it isn't a profession. That doesn't mean you don't need intelligent, clever people to do it, but it's not a profession. Those, those are my kind of views on it. But the main thing is, look, if you're trying to do this, if you're trying to, you know, stop the number of people reoffending who come out of prison, um, if you want to do scientific discovery about how you genetically change plants to make them more productive, you don't need lots of yeah. people evaluating it because it's absolutely obvious. Prison reform comes up in the book as something you were interested in and looked at yeah. but chose not to focus on, I think because it was simply too big and intractable a set of questions. Uh, have I got that right? Uh, yeah, I, I, I can never find a way that you could actually make a difference. Um, uh, that's partly because um, uh, the way we run our prisons um, makes it almost impossible to have um, uh, uh, schemes which will really make a difference. Um, and you have to alter the whole way uh, they're run and how probation officers run and whatnot. I mean, it's a very obvious case, uh, again, where... Uh, we have an appalling uh, p position um, and uh, at some point someone will kind of uh, really understand and do something about it. I mean, they, the point is, uh, clearly, if you want to reduce crime, uh, the first thing you do is stop recidivism from prisons, i.e. people going back um, and reoffending. Uh, I think our rate is, is something like 70%. Uh, and you look at countries which have proper systems, and it's 20-30%. Um, and the reason for that is because when they're in prisons, uh, a lot of people are illiterate, have mental health problems, uh, can't get jobs, and they tackle these problems, and then, then they don't leave the prison until it's known they've got a job, they've got a house to go to, uh, they've um, got a GP and so on as opposed to being dropped somewhere in the country with a small amount of money in their pocket and the first people they meet are the, are the drug dealers. Um, I mean, it's, it's clearly some point someone's going to do this, something about it, but you can't do it as an out, individual outside the system. You talk about making a difference. Where do you think you've made, what do you, where do you think you've made the biggest difference? What, what's, what's your um, kind of proudest philanthropic achievement? And in brackets, you should hear in my voice that I, the next question after that is going to be, what's the biggest mistake? Okay. Um, well, I think I, um, I, I think it's, it's one that's happening now would be the one that um, uh, will, I hope will give me over the years a many years of my life the most pleasure, 
which is the reform of the technical education in this, in this country, uh, because um, that is a, an appalling scandal. Um, uh, I don't know if you know. Elaborate the, on the scandal, because I'm not sure everyone will know what the baseline well, the, for the conversation is. Uh, the first report, which said British technical education is not as good as the Germans, is in 1870. Um, since then, uh, there have been endless commissions, reports, new schemes to try and, and deal with this. Um, uh, and here we are, um, whatever it is, 150 years later, and the system is still incredibly bad. Um, uh, and we have a position where uh, there's a very serious shortage um, uh, of technicians uh, to the extent it really affects performance of industry. And yet we have, I don't know what the exact figure today is, but it's probably a quarter of a million young people who are unemployed. Uh, now, I don't believe there aren't many of those people who couldn't become uh, uh, technicians, have a career progression, uh, have, have a better way of life. Uh, and we have just never done the hard work of thinking how you should develop your system, learning from other countries, and uh, uh, doing something about this. Uh, my trust has been doing stuff in this area um, uh, probably for 25 years now. Uh, and finally, um, uh, I don't know what it was, three or four years ago now, um, uh, we made, we've made some sort of progress, but uh, we, um, uh, the, minute, the minister then, Nick Bowles, uh, who was in charge of technical education, uh, asked to see me, and I went along and saw him, and um, I took along with me a guy called Nigel Thomas, who works for me on technical education, has that, probably knows more about it than anyone else, and... Um, he rang me up afterwards and said, could Nigel go and work for him in, in, the, um, uh, in the department uh, to help him reform, look at the reform of technical education? Uh, and then he came back. I said yes. And then he came back and said, would you run a panel to, to look at this? And we've produced a report, and it's now accepted by the government, uh, who've also accepted a report we did, uh, quite independently got done, uh, on careers advice. Um, and we're now spending a lot of time making certain that is implemented. Um, if I can get a good technical education system in this country, uh, that, that will keep me, and good careers advice, uh, that's quite, that's, that's good, because that's, uh, I think it's 300, I think every year there's 600,000 young people um, Half of those will go academic route to university. The other half will go apprenticeships, technical education. Uh, if you can make their uh, education better, their careers advice better, that, that's the sort of kind of chunky goal that I think one should aim for. Yeah. Well, I can't be in a university and not assent to that. Um, so now I did warn you this was coming. Yeah. Where, what are you least proud of? In other words, where, where, where have you made a mistake in your philanthropic career? Um, uh, that's a very, very easy answer to that. Um, uh, the biggest mistake I think we've made um, uh, is uh, we have a project, uh, well, we had a project in Mozambique, um, 
uh, it was actually started while I was in government, but as you'll see, this is no excuse to it. Um, I had at some point, when I went into government, I had to have no contact uh, with my charitable trust. This, for some completely bizarre reason, this was thought to be a conflict of, uh, of interest. Uh, so I wasn't able to deal with my uh, charitable trust. Um, and I had at some point expressed the view that, as well as supporting projects uh, in Africa, we should at some point see if we could uh, do a project um, probably in the agricultural area, which really would create jobs uh, in the country. And um, uh, while I was in government, this person, we came up, uh, the Gatsby, people of Gatsby came up with the idea of a project in Mozambique, uh, in the middle of Mozambique, uh, which was going to do uh, both um, uh, rice production and uh, production of baby corn uh, for the European uh, market. Um, and that this was started, and then when I came out of government, uh, the guy who was then running my charitable trust uh, came along and said, uh, we've set up this project, and I've just been to visit it, and it was a huge mistake. Um, and I said, of course, buoyed up by having been in government, you know, uh, I said, well, I, I will go and visit this. Um, and I will see whether there is a project there and that we can make it uh, viable. Um, and I went out, I convinced myself uh, that there was a project. You could see uh, that if you could produce rice, it was a good place to grow rice and so on. Um, uh, you could make a business of it. At least that's what I thought. Um, uh, what we didn't really factor into it is it's... it's in the middle of nowhere. It's right in the middle of Mozambique. Mozambique is a country, uh, I think, f four times the size of France. I mean, it, this is not a small country. Uh, there is no proper infrastructure. Um, and we just did not have people who could manage an agricultural project in the middle of Mozambique. Um, and every time we got it going, we would be hit by some new disaster of one sort or another, uh, sometimes it was um, uh, internal warfare, sometimes it was a flood. And we should have very quickly said, look, uh, this, this, is, this is a mistake, uh, get out of it. We plowed on doggedly uh, and spent a lot of money on this. Uh, now, we have transformed one town in Mozambique. We've turned it into quite a thriving place. We have quite a good factory there. Um, uh, we grow amazingly baby corn uh, for the English supermarkets, which is really difficult, which is a really difficult task. Um, and uh, uh, we have actually just now sold it on to another uh, African company. Um, and it, you know, it, has a, uh, it has an impact on about 1,000, maybe 2,000 people's lives and has transformed them. But, the, but at a cost in money, which you simply couldn't uh, justify in, in retrospect. Um, that, that, was, that was a big mistake. Though with some positive social return. But I, I'm very interested in what you said in passing um, about when you were in government, you weren't allowed to have anything to do with your trust. Yeah. Um, because that, that, that opens up the conversation um, 
about the relationship between the state or government um, yeah. and the charitable or philanthropic Yeah, sector. I have to say it was based on the most absurd argument. Uh, what is the argument? Well, the argument I had with the permanent secretary, who was the most proper, decent civil servant, and he said, if you give money to, to people, you're, you're beholden to them. Therefore, there is a conflict of interest. And I remember trying rather feebly to say, no, 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 in my experience, they're beholden to me. Uh, 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 so what is the conflict of interest? The logic being that they might vote for, y- they might v- vote for, y- for your no, party. No, it wasn't that. It was that somehow I was beholden to them. Okay, okay. Um, which seemed to me showed a pleasing lack of understanding of corruption by the permanent secretary. But... but uh, <laughs> uh, was was absolutely absurd. But this, this occurred in the middle of the whole crisis about GM, uh, of which I was being painted as this appalling figure who had come it's into genetic government... Genetic modification. Uh, appalling figure who had come into government simply uh, to thrust Frankenstein foods down our young people's throat in order to make market money for my supermarket. Um, so it, was, it wasn't uh, a, a time for refined argument. We might come back to GM, but I want to stick on this government question just for yeah. a second. One of the arguments about philanthropy, one of the arguments for philanthropy, is that it can do things that governments find it impossible to do, one of which is fail. Okay? Very, it's very hard. I'm, I'm slightly paraphrasing arguments, your arguments here. Government, governments can't say we're going to spend a great deal of money and we reckon there's about a 90% chance of it not working. But if, the, if in that 10% it does work, then lots of good things will follow. That's a very difficult thing for a government to do. It is a perfectly rational thing for a philanthropist to do. Um, and, it's, and it creates a link, as it were, between what philanthropists do experimentally and what states do institutionally. And I, if I've read you correctly you are a strong believer in that risk-taking, complementary definition of philanthropy. Have I got that right? Absolutely. I mean, I think I knew before I went into government that uh, what governments find very difficult to do is innovate. Uh, it's very difficult to innovate in government because for two reasons. One is you have to admit that you're, you've got it wrong. You're not doing it right. And then the second is uh, you have to argue for something which isn't proven to be a good use of public money. So the, the kind of uh, discussion you have with the Treasury is you say, I have this brilliant, innovative idea to do this. And they say, but where is your proof that this is a good use of public money? And you say, but it's innovation. The point about innovation is you don't have proof. Um, so government finds it very difficult to innovate or take risks. So I give you an example which I don't think people realize. If you take scientific research, um, uh, we probably have in this country, together with America, the best system for funding research, which is done on peer review grant giving. So if you're a young scientist, you have to put in applications for research projects. Well, of course, in this place, uh, everyone knows about that. Uh, And then that's reviewed by distinguished people in, the, in, the, um, uh, in, in that particular area, academic area, and people are given grants. Um, I, I'm not, I don't know quite as well as I do in science, but there is no question in science uh, that 
I mean, and this is a very fair system, and it's better than practically any other system. But it has the great weakness uh, that a young scientific researcher, for sure, uh, will plan to do a particular experiment rather than another one, because he said, I, I could be certain I can get a result and a paper out of this research project. Uh, this one is, is much more speculative and risk-taking, and we'll go for the first. Um, and it's very difficult for um, a government to, do, to deal with this, I think. Um, we have run our, well, our, both of our major, well, our, our three research labs now, on the basis we fund people uh, to do research. Uh, we then have a quality control system, which is an uh, international panel of people who come in uh, and assess the researchers' research on the basis, are they doing good research? Um, uh, and I don't think there's any doubt that that has helped uh, people take more adventures, more risky projects, uh, and therefore has led, led to better science overall. Uh, that um, we could do because we said, look, we're prepared to take... Uh, I mean, I don't think there really are very much risk, but, but we could afford to take that. Um, and so actually getting uh, more individual researchers funded on a longer time horizon is something I think charitable money uh, can do. The other thing, uh, of course, is um, where, where the system is not very good is if a new subject is developing, uh, which has no real track record, um, our system does not work well in saying, look, this is a major issue, we'll put up a new research institute and dedicate it to this subject, uh, because that's, again, taking a real judgment uh, and putting money behind a judgment uh, about that. And that, uh, that the system finds that very difficult, whereas uh, if you're an individual funder, you can do that. And you don't think there's a risk that your very existence in that risk-taking role crowds out an innovation capacity in the, in the bigger system. No, no, because there's plenty of, there's an enormous amount of capacity. Uh, there are lots and lots of researchers uh, who very happily, uh, if there was the opportunity, would, uh, would uh, very happily take these risky, riskier pro projects, I think. I'm going to shift tack slightly now and, and, and identify what I think is called a, an elephant in the room, which is this notion that the world of philanthropy and including charity and humanitarian aid and relief work um, is under somewhat of a cloud at the moment uh, for all the reasons that everyone in the room understands perfectly well. Do you think that there, that, that threatens the legitimacy of your enterprise, um, by which I mean philanthropy. Um, and uh, do you think that there, is, there are cases that should be being made more strenuously in its defence? Um, uh, I think one of the things of um, being in government for um, a period is you do, you, uh, you do see that there are certain issues which are kind of fundamental issues and they, uh, they emerge at certain persons and they are going to be long-term issues uh, which people have to deal with. 
And then there's another kind of issue which suddenly you get one case of something and then you get a whole lot of other um, cases come up. Um, uh, and then suddenly uh, it stops. People lose interest and it goes on to something completely different. Uh, I have to say my own particular uh, sense is that the, um, this is a particular case where you've had one, one sort of really a bad situation and everyone now is, all the journalists uh, are seeking to get in their newspaper an example of some charity which has behaved badly. Um, my own guess is, I, I don't think there's a re real fundamental problem about this. Um, uh, and I don't, think, you know, I don't think this is a thing where you say, well, um, you know, all charities are behaving badly this way. Uh, I think it will... Um, it won't go, you know, it will, six months from now, it will be some completely different subject. Um, but that's, that's only my guess, because I don't think there is a really a fundamental uh, problem here. Um, and I think, I have to say, I think there's a political overtone to this, which is uh, it would suit uh, some, some people in politics if uh, the aid uh, industry was kind of blackened a bit. Um, yes, I think in the chair I'm not allowed to agree, but but but, uh, uh, but perhaps taking a totally objective view, taking a totally objective view, you, I think you I, find yourself somewhere near my position. I find myself somewhere near your position. Um, in about five minutes, I'm going to ask you to ask us questions. So please start thinking about your perfectly honed question, um, and when the time comes. Um, a very kind person in a red T-shirt will hand you a microphone um, and um, I'll ask you to tell us who you are and so on. Um, but I wanted, to, um, I wanted to finish with a, um, uh, a, a quite a technical question in this world of philanthropy. Um, and I'll preface it just by explaining where it comes from. Um, as a general rule, large philanthropic foundations have two halves, one of which makes grants, gives money away, okay, in respect of the thing it cares about. So let's just pretend it's, it's um, um, sustainable energy. And the other half of it has, a, has money which it is obliged to invest for maximum return. And you can get into a situation in which this half is investing in fossil fuels and this half is, is um, combating the effects of fossil you have been identified with certain kinds of reforming ideas in this world. Um, do you think that's a, that's a sustainable position? Do you think it's likely to change? Um, I'm not quite certain what the... What the I mean, the, the, um, the, the, there's a question which has nothing to do with, with charities, which is, do you invest... Um, in companies which are doing immoral things which you think are moral. And I don't think it matters whether you're a private individual or charity. Uh, you should not do that. Um, I mean, I just don't think you should invest in something which is doing something you totally disapprove of. But does that mean, then, that let's take the... And with apologies to anyone in the room from the Gates Foundation, uh, I use you only as a, as, a, as a stereotypical example of a big foundation, yeah. that you can't make grants 
on the uh, f to um, uh, climate risk mitigation and have investments in fossil fuels? Now, because this comes back to the question, do you think that fossil fuel companies are doing immoral things? And, and I don't think they are. Okay. I mean, um, uh, you know, there's a lot about we must get out of fossil fuels. Um, uh, there's that whole kind of movement on this. Um, it seems to me, um, uh, A, uh, there's no way you're going to achieve it. And B, if you did achieve it, it's disastrous. Okay. I mean, we're all sitting here with lights on. It's all powered by fossil fuels. Uh, this will be solved, this issue, by solar energy uh, becoming cheap enough, which it is, and replacing fossil fuels. In the meantime, we are reliant on fossil fuel companies to go on producing energy. Okay. Um, uh, and I, f I don't think I, c I feel this to be an immoral thing to do. I mean, you know, they are providing the energy, which is keeping this world going. There is another consideration, which is, as far as I'm concerned, it's a complete waste of time um, selling shares in fossil fuel companies. Uh, all you're doing is allowing other people... I mean, they're, they're not going to stop producing fossil fuels. Uh, all they're going to do is the shareholders will be uh, Russian magnets and uh, other people who will then have the shares. Um, uh, and make money from them. Uh, they're not going to go out of business. And even if they went into business, uh, the companies you're withdrawing your money from, who are going to take over? The Saudi Arabians, the Russians, uh, the Venezuelans? Uh, I can't think of a more pointless, pointless <laughs> operation myself. Well, again, I'm tempted uh, to agree. But let, let, mean, me, let, me, let me try I mean, this question but the again. absolute key issue, it's not... It's not producing fossil fuels is not in itself inherently immoral just because you think the energy policy of the country, which has been changed, should point in another direction and we should try and shift our energy sources from there to um, another place. I understand and, and I'm tempted to agree. Yeah. Let me try one more time, though, by just putting yeah. it the other way around. Is it, a, is, it, is it consistent with that to make grants to organizations for whom that is not a sustainable position? In other words, who simply don't believe that? Um, because the Ford Foundation, for example, finds itself in this position where it is making grants to people who say it is complete, it is, who don't take the position that, that you've just sketched. Yeah. Um, but has investments that takes your position. Is it okay for big philanthropy to inhabit that contradiction? Uh, I'm not quite on the point. I mean, uh, foundations, as any other body, should make up their own minds about what they think is right and moral. Um, just because some other, well, other group thinks differently, uh, it's, it's for your moral conscience as to whether you think this is moral or not. If, if you think... Um, a particular activity of a company is immoral, you should get out of shouldn't it, invest in it and shouldn't invest in it, whether that's going into charities or anything else, I think is irrelevant. That's clear. Okay, I warned you that I was going to ask you to ask us, um, which is to say, ask David um, questions. Um, if you put your hand up, um, the microphone will come to you when I point you out. 
you were first. Um, tell us your name, and please try to frame your question as a question. Um, and <laughs> if I haven't understood the question, I will attempt to restate it. If I can't do that, I'll move on to the next person. Thank you. Um, Lord Sainsbury, I would be curious to know your thoughts, given um, uh, that your your, um, the basis of your trust comes from your family wealth, which you inherited. Um, how do you feel charitable trust will change in the future as waves of people making their own wealth is changing and the sort of the idea of family inheritance is you know, different from as it was 50 or 100 years ago? Um, I'm not quite certain which way you think this is going. Do you think it, um, there will be less people with family fortunes or more or... In what way that will change? Fewer families who are established. I mean, I think over, over my life, it's gone more towards uh, there being more wealthy people uh, who could do this. I mean, I think um, uh, if you go back before the kind of Thatcher era, uh, there were very, there were rather few uh, large uh, family fortunes. Um, uh, I think since then there have been more, um, and I think that has raised this whole issue of charitable giving, because uh, there are more people who who've made money, um, uh, and uh, really seriously want to think um, how how they can make use of that. So I think I think that, and of course it tends to be more people um, who, who the generation have made money. Um, and then they, and I think that means they're more active. Um, uh, they they think, well, we we made changes in in our businesses. Uh, now we want to make uh, changes in the in the way society works. Um, so we don't want just to fund um, shelters for homeless people. We want to do something about uh, trying to deal with the problem of homelessness. And I think that's to be greatly encouraged. There are probably people in the room who know this better than me, but in the U.S. alone, there is a minimum of a trillion dollars of philanthropic capital. And some people argue that that is, you know, between twice and three times under-reported, under um, and that that number is significantly bigger than it has ever been before. Hi, my name is Bailey Aaron, and I run a charity that is innovating in prison reform, so we're bringing coaching into prisons to reduce violence and reoffending. So I'd love to challenge you on uh, nothing's currently working uh, later. Um, my question is that in, in running a charity, I've um, encountered the power dynamic that exists between philanthropists and the charities that they're looking to support. And sometimes I've had a wonderful collaborative relationship with philanthropists where we're in it together and sometimes um, the treatment by philanthropists can be quite patronizing, and some charities, um, and sometimes including myself, have felt um, like we need to uh, a pressure to change our mission or to chase the money um, or to behave in a way um, where we're not fully comfortable as a result. And I was wondering, as a philanthropist, how you've approached that power dynamic and any tips for charities in managing it. Um. I'm not certain uh, whether there is a kind of uh, uh, a way of dealing with that, because I think it, it would depend so much on what the charity was like. Um, as, I, as I understand, the problem is you have, you're dealing with charities uh, who are saying, well, we don't like 
exactly what you're doing. We would want you to do something different. And it's not something you're comfortable with. Is that right? Um, uh, I, thought, I mean, there are only two ways you can deal with it. One is to say, get, go away. <laughs> this is what we're doing. And the other is to say, you have a good point. Um, or, or you can try and persuade them. But I don't think there's a kind of... Uh, uh, there isn't one way you can deal with this. Um, if they're persuadable people, you try and persuade them. If they're not persuadable people, you just have to say, look, this is what we do and um, this is what we're about. Uh, I think as a whole, uh, the, the thing to do would be not to say, look, we'll change and do what you want. Uh, you must feel comfortable uh, with whatever it is unless they can produce arguments which say, look, uh, there is a better way to do it. Uh, I think this is just has to be one of those uh, situations where you have a dialogue and try and find a meeting of views, but if necessary, uh, you have to walk away and say, now, look, we're doing something different. <laughs> um, I was wondering if you could reflect a little bit um, not on your role as a donor and a philanthropist, but as someone that's been very involved in the running of charitable organisations as a trustee. Is it something um, you find very rewarding or at times frustrating? And how has this changed over the many, many years you've been um, involved in these charities and as a philanthropist? Um, uh, I've... I've um uh, I've, I enormously enjoy it, um, and I think I'm very um, lucky to be in this position because what I like in life uh, is having, uh, and it, it applies both my business life, my government life, my philanthropic life, uh, has been about um, uh, having difficult problems, thinking of solutions, and then being able to implement them. And um, that, that is what I find enjoyable in life. Um, uh, I enjoy thinking about new ways of doing things, but then uh, the challenge of actually making it work in, in practice. Um, and, um, uh, and I think I've been able to... That, that obviously is something you can do in business, and it's something you can do in philanthropy, and it's something you can do as a, a government minister. Um, uh, what I think is, was interesting in my life is um, I, when I was a government minister, um, uh, uh, when I was a politician, I was a government minister. I did that for eight years. I loved it. Um, uh, even the bit which was spending hours and hours in the House of Lords um, answering questions was quite fun because you were trying to achieve something, because um, almost always we were a minority government, and therefore you had to persuade the Lib Dems or someone to come onto your side. That was all fun. Uh, I have to say, when I went back, uh, not as a minister to the House of Lords, uh, and you just had to sit there listening to people making speeches, all of which you had heard 20 times before, and even if you made a speech, there was nothing likely to happen as a result of it, that is incredibly boring. Um, uh, so um, I think actually running charitable trust, but you have to say, 
Um, I'm going to put in quite a bit of time. I am really going to try and understand these issues we're dealing with and what is the right answer, because it won't necessarily be um, obvious. Um, and the way it's changed in my life is, of course, I now have uh, a team of incredibly good people, um, each of which, uh, each of whom, with sometimes a small team, are really knowledgeable about the particular area. Um, and in working with those people, um, I, I think they have a lovely job because you know they can be uh, running great chunks on technical education, or they can be. Uh, running projects in Africa, which if they're not in Mozambique can be quite uh, really, well, all of them are challenging. Um, some are more fun than others. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, most, most people want to do, make the world a better place, and if they can have an opportunity to do that, which makes use of their talents and skills, I think there's probably nothing more rewarding. Interested that you that that you that sentence just now that most people want to make the world a better place. There's a there are two conversations going on. One is that people are fundamentally altruistic and that hasn't changed much, and the other is that our altruism is being corroded by everything from social media to populist politics. You're on the former wing of that, presumably. You think that that you think that. Um, human instincts are fundamentally um, altruistic or, or, or um, benign? Um, well, I, th I think it's more that people um, as a whole um, get fun out of life uh, by doing good things um, than they do. There, are, there is a small group. Of, well, yeah, I think people by and large um, I don't know about your life or, but I mean I expect uh, that when you are doing things, when you're teaching students and whatnot, um, you think you are making the world a better place, and that gives you satisfaction, isn't it? Well, I, I completely agree. Um, um, the question is, very often, you're not in a position where it's easy to do that, and you're having to do uh, either boring routine things or things that you don't really think make much difference. Uh, but in my experience, there are very few people who are given the opportunity uh, to do something uh, which is, um, makes the world a better place um, uh, will we'll turn it up, actually. I agree. Right in the middle, right in the middle of this middle row here. The furthest possible distance for the microphone to travel. Uh, Alex Fortune, I invest money, um, the money of charities and endowments, amongst other, other things. Um, and I'm curious how you balance uh, investing your foundation and growing it versus spending it. You could spend lots a day and shrink it, or you could spend a little bit and grow it as much as possible so you have more in the future. Um. I guess we take, um, on both of them, we take a fairly long-term view. Um, uh, so the investment is, is on a long-term basis, and the giving is long-term basis. Um, uh, and that's how I think it should be. Um, 
and I'm probably one of the few people who has a personal financial plan um, uh, of how much I can spend over the years ahead. I mean, it's a, it's a rather difficult calculation because it all depends on when I die, and we spend a lot of time fine-tuning that, um, which I think is quite fun, but um, slightly... Uh, 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 some people find slightly uh, morbid. I think it's just rather interesting. But um, we fund on a long-term basis. We have to. Um, because um, if you set up a laboratory, uh, which is quite expensive business on going cost, uh, you can't do that unless you can be pretty certain that you're going to have the money to fund it on a long-term basis. So you have to plan it on a long-term basis. And we do the investment on a, on a similar basis. Right at the back there. I guess, I guess it goes back to having been a finance director for most of my life. I don't think you can fund long-term projects with short-term uh, investment returns. Hello, I'm Margaret Newins. I work for a WASH charity called Pump Aid. Um, I was interested, actually, during the course of the discussion that you referred to the similarities, well, the differences between government and philanthropists in that government can't afford to take risks and they have to have a very high percentage certainty that uh, the project will actually succeed as opposed perhaps philanthropists being a little bit more risky. Um, in the wash sector, we work specifically in Malawi and it's the Department of International Development's statistic that roughly 40% of pumps in Malawi don't work and when they fall out of action... They tend to remain non-functional for over a year and frequently end up abandoned altogether. Um, we find it quite difficult. It, our, our approach is very different. We won the UK Charity Awards last year, actually, for a business approach. Our, our approach has been setting up small businesses um, to actually uh, roll out uh, its repair, repair and maintenance of community pumps, and actually then we designed a pump which is used domestically. Um, we find it nevertheless quite difficult to compete in the space of all these organisations who are really delivering very much more of the same in terms of community wash, and the, which has with it the inherent problem of non-functionality. What do you think we should do to uh, somehow uh, put across the fact that our model is very much uh, more effective, even though it receives uh, considerably less funding um, and considerably less uh, uh, public uh, profile and acclaim in comparison with many of the large charities? Uh, well, I, th I think you've just got to do the sums and be able to, to make that case, isn't it? I mean, this is where um, uh, I don't want to be seen to be against evaluation and, and proper monitoring of what's happening. But if you're doing that, you should be able to say, look, now this is, uh, this is what is happening on the ground. This is what is really effective. Um, and make that case isn't it? I mean, that's the only way you can do it, and I think that is extremely important, because as I say, just having goodwill, just saying, look, um, <laughs> we're doing good things, um, is not enough. You've got to be able to make the case that that is the right thing to do. And you, do, do, do you seem to, to think that's idealistic folly, or... 
We often find ourselves in a position where there is obviously we we are weighted. We we are a very small uh, uh, organisation, and the weight of um, investment and interest um, in the wash sector tends to go to organisations, large organisations, um, who fundamentally see well. They perhaps you know they they have the marketing and the um, the corporate. Uh, power, if you like, um, but they are really producing more of the same. We do. I mean, we do the monitoring valuation, and obviously, as I say, you know, one thing was the fact that we did we we did win the charity awards. But you right. know, it's it's it it sometimes feels like a little bit of an uphill struggle. That's all. <laughs> I mean, it seems to me if you can win the award, you should be able to turn that into support. Uh, it's a question of finding then the right people. Um, who are really concerned about what are the results out there. Uh, but, but and and, and all, all assistance is much appreciated. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. This person in the corner at the back. Uh, thank you very much for your presentation. I'm Paul Twyman. I'm a great fan of your Institute for Government. I would like to know, my question... Um, how hands-on are you? I mean, there could be a spectrum. You could go in there every day or you could leave it to the staff to crack on with it or you could set a broad framework. What's your way of dealing with that excellent organisation? Um, well, the, the Institute for Government is the one um, organisation we support uh, where I actually play a role in running it. Um, uh, the reason for this was um, uh, it was something which, when I came out of government, um, as a result of my experience in government, um, I thought there was a great need for an institute like this. Um, and so I decided to set it up um, and got a report written on what we should do and so on. And that then came the question of um, uh, uh, who should we make chairman of it? And uh, we did a sort of proper analysis. Uh, we need someone uh, who has experience of uh, business, uh, but who's also been in, in government and experience about government uh, and cares about this particular issue of efficiency in government. Uh, and I couldn't find anyone who th I thought would do this as well as I could, because <laughs> I was almost the only person in the country who could point to that kind of record. So I, I thought I would make an exception of this and um, uh, uh, make myself, uh, appoint myself chairman of this. Um, and how do I run it? Um, uh, I, I think I do run it pretty much as a chairman should run it, um, it with one exception, which was... Um, I had a, no. It's not. It's a, it's kind of quite fundamental issue. I had very clear ideas as to what this organisation do, what the kind of problems the issues were, uh, which was based on my experience in, in government, and actually always having been rather interested in this question of could you apply uh, the kind of um, ideas that I had learnt um, in particularly in I went to American Business School to get my MBA. And uh, I became very interested in the issues of uh, financial control, but also organization, 
um, uh, issues, uh, particularly of structures of organizations. Um, and so when I was in government, it was a very interesting uh, issue, just seeing how, uh, in my view, badly uh, government was being run. And so I actually had quite a strong agenda of what are the issues we should tackle in that. Um, so I guess I play more than the normal chairman's role uh, in terms of uh, where the agenda should go and indeed uh, dealing at high level with people in the, in the uh, civil service and so on. Hi there, I'm Kevin Chuano, LSE alumnus. Um, so you've talked uh, uh, in some length about your work in Africa. Um, you're also uh, a very substantial shareholder or a large shareholder in um, Sainsbury's. I'd be interested in your views on um, their recent decision to roll back their support for fair trade, um, because on one hand, it seems that uh, you're giving a helping hand to people in that country. On the other hand, a business which you have a large interest in is seemingly doing the opposite. How do you balance uh, your philanthropy uh, with uh, what goes on in your investments? Uh, yeah, that's, that's a very good question. I mean, the answer is because uh, you can imagine uh, it was something I asked Sainsbury's about rather quickly in this process. Actually, they have got a, um, a, a very uh, thoughtful and actually well uh, thought out position on this. It's not that they're against the idea of fair trade. It is that they actually think the fair trade organization is not doing a very good job uh, on, on what, they are, what they're supposed to be doing. Uh, and they're actually... Uh, applying a different set of criteria uh, which they think is better and more relevant. So, I mean, it's not against the idea of fair trade. It's a question of how you implement that. Um, uh, now, you, you can argue about whether um, Sainsbury's pulling out of that uh, in some way distracts from the fair trade organisation. Uh, I don't think it does. I think it's important that uh, a business like Sainsbury's continues to say, look, what is the best way to do this, uh, and continues to think of ways of improving it. Hello. Hi, good evening. Um, my name's Susan Falola, and I'm actually here with my partner, Sean Tulloch. Um, he's actually raised £1.2 million for charity, just for different organisations dealing with various different you know, fields of um, help. But basically, I actually uh, made an application to the Gatsby charity in regards to um, a entrepreneurial activity that I'm into. Um, it's actually to help children through facilitating um, their psycholog uh, psychological um, benefits through products as well as services. Um, and I just felt that, you know, there's certain criteria within the Gatsby charity organisation that doesn't actually help with entrepreneurial efforts in, in innovation. How would you be able to uh, address that? So what was the organisation? It's uh, signed by Bubble Little. So it's an organisation helped um, to facilitate through products as well as a platform um, in terms of their psychological uh, benefits as well as um, their educational benefits. Okay. And you were applying for a grant to them? Which, I did, which, yeah. was, which was turned down, was it? Yeah, so it was under the um, engineering, um, scientific and engineering through the educational sector part of the Gatsby charity. Right. 
obviously, um, without, without knowing rather more about it, I, I can't comment. But, um, uh, you know, um, uh, it's, it's quite a difficult job. Uh, obviously, uh, it's particularly difficult if, um, if, if you're dealing with uh, kind of projects which you don't uh, know a great deal about. Um, and, and that is why I've always taken the, 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 well, not always taken, but have come to the view that actually concentrating on um, a very few areas and really knowing more about it than, than anyone else is the way to run charities. Um, you know, without, without knowing a great deal more about your application or the organisation. Uh, what it was is as well is that we actually have a group of scientists actually working on the product so the fact that they're able to obviously um you know believe in the product itself which is for entrepreneurial purposes which they usually do scientific developments in health as well as you know making new curable um new curable allowances for people that have certain diseases so the fact that they're able to actually facilitate this process that's why we wanted to obviously help you know well, yeah you will you will Gatsby. if you haven't discovered it already you will you will find uh, i think particularly in nutrition issues uh, even distinguished scientists will not always agree okay. um they agree on all sorts of things that nutrition and badges are two of the issues which you will get very different views on and you just have to live with that Thank you. That's not very helpful, but that's the best I can do. Hi, Paul Cannon. Um, going back to this issue of the investments held by charities, yeah. I should just declare of a vested interest that we're building a platform which will let charities and ordinary people vote the shares that they own through their collective investments. Um, do you think that charities at your sort of level, for want of a better word, would put significant or what level of resources would would make it interesting for you to start engaging or actively engaging as an investor in the in the companies that you own a slice of so you were talking about sainsbury's and how you'd raised issues right um there i'm guessing that you have a a fair whack of your portfolio still in sainsbury stock yeah um but if we look across i mean globally it's something like 40 trillion dollars worth of shares is owned through collective investments right and what we are doing is letting people vote those shares and we have uh, set up a mechanism so that that ngos will be able to act as default advisors now this works very well in areas where um they have a large following and that aggregates out an awful lot but for for organisations such as yours, would it be something that you would be um, interested in in pursuing for certain stock, or would you just want to sort of follow the advice of other NGOs? Um, uh, I have to say, I, this is this to to be um, to be realistic about this. Um, it is incredibly difficult uh, for a charity like, well, the, the investor, but particularly a charity like this, uh, to monitor um, uh, what the investment, other than in a fairly crude way, um, uh, of 
uh, they're clearly doing something immoral. Um, uh, that is partly because it's quite a large number of, of companies. It's partly also because uh, we, like many other uh, charities, would, invest, would have fund managers and we would invest in their funds. Uh, so it's actually, and, and that relationship is you invest in that fund or you don't invest. Uh, there isn't a relationship which says we invest in your fund but we don't want you to do that. Uh, yeah, I mean, if, if, uh, if, if you can have that relationship. But um, uh, it is just incredibly difficult. Um, and the other thing you've got to be realistic about is a lot of this funding is not, it's not just about funds in England. Uh, this is about uh, funds which are up across the globe. Um, and uh, again, there is a question of what is moral and what is not immoral, as opposed to what is policies that you don't particularly like. Um, uh, so if it was a case of we heard that there was a comp there's a company which has some kind of slave labor, we would just say, that's it. But whether, uh, once you get into uh, aerospace companies or, um, I, I, as you can see, fossil fuel companies and others, uh, I, I think whether the question of whether these are moral or not is impossible. I mean, to, to have a realistic view where you say, I mean, I don't want to sound sort of... I, I did go through a period of trying to do this um, when I first became an investor, and it, it seemed to me it, it landed you with all sorts of ridiculous positions, actually. Sorry, I'm not sure you meant this. Sorry. Well, of trying to say, look, these, these are things which we disapprove of, and these are things we approve of investment, as opposed to saying, look, this is actually doing something which is clearly immoral and which we don't want to be associated with. Uh, do you invest in aerospace companies because aerospace companies are making planes uh, which are uh, fighter jets, which are clearly in the position uh, of uh, being useful in warfare or not? Um, and if you're, are you really saying those people are doing something immoral or not? Uh, these, if you're really going to take that view, these are the sort of questions you have to ask yourself. And uh, you can spend all your time doing that. Um, and so I, I, as far as I'm concerned, we, we have a very clear view. If it is something generally immoral, I slave labor, that is out. But, but you know, even, even that, I have to tell you, when you start actually getting down to a real situation, and what you find is uh, labor uh, is being used um, in a country in a sweatshop of, of uh, which you might say, well, this is, you know, th these are women who are walking 20 miles every day, working long hours in a factory, uh, coming home, and so on. Uh, and you say, well, this, this is barbaric. Uh, then when you get into it and you find uh, who those people are and you talk to them, uh, you'll find they are saying, but this has transformed my life. You, you don't understand that actually the biggest sweatshop is working in the field, agricultural fields. 
actually, if we work, we walk to this factory, which is making, uh, you know, running shoes of some sort for uh, some company. That has transformed our lives. We walk there every morning. It's a, we work long as we come back. But actually, we now have an income. Uh, and that means we are actually getting more food. We're getting proper amount of food. And we don't have to get married uh, when we're young. Uh, uh, we actually, we're quite happy with this. Um, if, if the alternative is not having that factory there. So these things are a bit more difficult uh, when you get into a kind of real situation like that. Um, uh, as I say, if, it, if it's clearly something, I slave labor, that's different. But, but be very careful about making these judgments on people's behalves in those countries, because it's not always judging it by uh, Western standards may not be uh, the one which is most in the interest of people. Okay, we have a series of questions stacked up now. We have three stacked up. So I'm going to ask you to be particularly brief. Yeah. I'd like to ask about technical education, please. Oh, brilliant. I'm yeah, governor <laughs> of a school, or several schools, and I'm uh, from a business background. I've worked in business. I'm a finance director. Um, my concern about the government's T-levels is they're just talking about further education colleges doing it. Right. My school has a sixth form. We have a substantial number of vocational courses. I, my fear is those vocational courses will get closed down and the students will have to go to FE colleges to do um, T-levels. Your question is... Do you agree T-levels are only for FE colleges and not sixth forms? Um, yeah, I think, I think that, has, that has been the idea. I mean, the idea is that there are two routes. Um, and I would have thought sixth forms uh, come rather firmly in the academic route. Definitely not. And you'll have a lot of sixth forms closing down if you go down that route. Because they're, they're doing... We do a lot of vocational courses as well. And that they would, um, the T-levels would be suitable for them? Some of them are. Uh, if, if you would write to me, I, I will take that up because it's, uh, it's a really interesting point. Uh, I thought there would be a very strong view that actually sixth form colleges were on the academic well, route. Six forms of 11 to 18 schools, a lot of us are doing vocational courses as well as academic. So and those kids would be, the, the idea would be they would be going on to um, do what afterwards? Well, at present, most of them go on to a university of some kind. Yeah. And, you know, the design technology course leads to architecture and textiles leads to fashion. The, the, the vocational courses lead to... Um, functional degrees rather than academic degrees. Yeah, I think I think this. No, I think there is a kind of um, issue here, which I would probably be more flexible. The government is is is, as you know, very very firmly fixed on there is an academic route, and that should, as a whole, not particularly cover uh, vocational courses. Um, uh, I, I'm, I would be, I think, on preference, slightly more flexible about this. 
But um, as a whole, I think that the, there are these two routes, and they do have rather different both objectives and the nature of them. But again, if you'll if you'll write to me to this, I'd be quite interested in that. Thank you very much. Lord Sainsbury, thank you for speaking with us today. Um, I'm Carsten Vogel. I work at LSE. And coming from a social science university, I just wanted to quickly talk uh, to you about the uh, Gatsby Charitable Foundation and ask the question, sort of, in your work in Africa and the activities that the foundation undertakes, sort of, apart from the direct funding that you do for sort of functional, sort of for research, um, how, where do you see the role of the higher education sector in Africa for um, sort of for helping sort of the overall development, and I assume sort of the approach of the foundation is sort of development as a sort of industrial transformation uh, process. So where do you see the higher education sector, and maybe in particular also social sciences, sort of, uh, of Afri in African universities? Where do you see their role there? But are we talking about African uh, higher education yes, East, institutions? Yes, East Africa, if you, if you like, as a specific or, example. Or UK ones? Uh, in, in Africa. So the higher education uh, uh, sector in Africa, sort of, where do you see their role in the long-term sort of development prospects, in particular with the approach of the foundation being sort of that of industrial transformation? Um, yeah, I, I, I have rather... Um, strong views on this, which, which are probably uh, uh, not, not ones you would particularly um, favor. Um, I think one of the big problems, I, I have to say I've never looked into this great detail, so uh, this is rather impressionistic. Um, but I have, I have um, I'm very obviously interested in this whole question of economic development. Um, and I think one of the most striking uh, if you look at um, the success stories, which is always, it seems to me, the place to start, uh, you should start with what happened in Singapore or to Taiwan or South Korea uh, in terms of how did they get economic development going. Uh, then there's absolutely no question about it. Um, investment in higher education is absolutely key to it. But the second part of it is Uh, it's in particular areas, and those areas are particularly engineering. If you look at any of those countries, you'll find an amazing increase in the number of uh, engineering uh, um, undergraduates going through the system. Uh, so, yes, higher education is very important, uh, but part of that is very strongly uh, what areas they're going into. And the bit that's impressionistic is... I think if you go to Africa, uh, what you'll find is uh, they're too much mimicking what they think as a British educational, liberal education is about. Uh, so there are too, much, uh, too many people doing things like um, uh, humanities, um, doing um, interested in politics, uh, law, and so on, and not enough were really involved in uh, engineering. Um, it's engineering rather than science, but in engineering. Uh, and that is, the, that is a major, major problem that one day should be uh, brought out. But there's no question, look, look at Japan, uh, look at um, Taiwan, look at Singapore, any of those countries. Enormous increase in the number of engineering students. And they are the people who come out and run the factories and 
the new manufacturing plants. Last question, and again I'm going to ask you to be brief. Sure, I feel the pressure of the last question, but um, my question is, uh, what is, what do you think would encourage philanthropic giving in the UK as a leading and very public philanthropist yourself? Um, I, th I think the, the great message to get across is uh, if you want to make the world a better place, uh, this is a challenging, interesting, and ultimate, ultimately pretty satisfying thing to be doing. That's uh, that, that would be always my message. Um, if you, and it, but you must be prepared to put something in. But if you put something in, uh, and it's not just money, it's effort and imagination and so on, uh, then this can be a very rewarding, rewarding thing to do. And um, certainly my wife and I have got an enormous amount of uh, pleasure out of it, uh, which we would not have got from lots of other activities that rich people go into. Thank you. Um, I won't try to summarize the whole conversation, but I will, um, on the LSE's behalf and on the Marshall Institute's behalf and on your behalf, um, thank you, Lord Sainsbury, um, for an extraordinarily wide-ranging, modest, and disclosing discussion um, on a range of things which are profoundly important. Um, I mean, the, 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 the book title is very revealing, A Better World is Possible. That premise is necessary for people to engage in innovation, in philanthropy, in politics and policy and so on. This, this idea that things aren't necessarily as they are, but they might be some better thing, um, is profoundly motivating. And to hear someone who has devoted a lifetime um, and significant resources, both intellectual and financial, and I'm guessing emotional uh, to that, is a real privilege, and we're very grateful. Um, I'm also grateful to you uh, for giving up a Tuesday evening and for asking um, um, really smart questions. Um, and finally, um, I would like to thank you uh, again, uh, except this time on behalf of the innumerable, and I kept trying to find some proxy, some proxy number for this, um, but couldn't. Um, but the innumerable people whose lives you have made better. Thank you very much. Can I, can I thank you for that? Uh, can I only say that um, as an ex-politician, the bit about you've been very disclosing is extremely worrying. <laughs> <laughs> I meant that as a compliment, not as a... Not that. Thank you very much. Thanks.